0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com. And of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, with the immediacy that we're getting from hospital professionals, including the leadership at Mount Sinai in New York and today at Beth Israel Deaconess Leahy up in Boston, we welcome all of you on radio and television to people in the trenches. That would be the Lieutenant Governor of the Empire State. Kathy Hochul joins us this morning. Kathy, if you read the Buffalo News, it's right in your face. It's right in our face nationwide. What is the best practice now for for politicians to contain the great hospitalization we're seeing?
1: Well, we have a strategy, Tom, and thank you, everyone, for having me back on this once again. Uh, Western New York, where I live, Erie County, Buffalo. We now have a 9.4% infection rate, and that up from just two and a half, three percent 3% over a month ago. So I want to just point out, first of all, these numbers can spiral out of control very quickly. And what that does, it's an infection rate that leads to an increased number of hospitalizations. And that is our greatest fear. Governor Cuomo and I have said this from the beginning. Our fear is overwhelming the hospital system. So what we're doing is, first of all, calling back retired nurses and doctors, asking them to enlist again and help us in this battle, but also asking every single hospital to ensure that they have 50% surge capacity. We had to do this in the spring. We know how it's done. And we can do this once again. Thirdly, we also want to make sure they have enough protective equipment. Remember how frightening it was back when March and April, we were scouring the planet in search of something as simple as a mask. We couldn't get them from anywhere. So we're making sure they have those supplies. But what something we can't control, which is very frightening, the staffing. The staffing now, these are individuals who've been in this battle and the front lines of this horrific war for months. They're exhausted. Many of them are sick themselves. Many of them don't want to expose their family members any longer. And that is where we're having a real crisis point. And early on, we were able to enlist 30,000 people from across the country who volunteered their time to come to the epicenter of the pandemic, New York City. Those people are now needed in their homes in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Oklahoma, and places where it's surging there as well. So that's what we're concerned about. We can create enough beds. We can put up field hospitals if we have to. But we have to make sure that they're properly staffed
2: that's the incredible stress on the health care system that we're seeing across the nation uh, and increasingly yet again in New York from the financial perspective there is a question of how much money is needed how soon and I know you've come on the show uh, quite a bit and talked about the needs financially for New York State Mitch McConnell currently putting out a bill a skinny bill to get done before the end of the year that would not include funding for uh, our for your government in New York State or other uh, local governments my question is how imminently do you need that money if you do not get it uh, before the end of the year. What gets cut first?
1: We needed this money yesterday, and I don't still do not understand for the life of me how Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans can be so stingy. This is a once-in-a-100-year event. It is a global pandemic. And I don't even know how they think we're going to get the vaccinations out, how they're going to get the vaccines distributed they don't give us money they're, they're being the governor is uh, governor pomo is head of the national governors association a bipartisan group yesterday they sent a letter saying to the federal government we need money to be able to distribute you're not going to do it nationwide okay fine you didn't help us with the testing you left us on our own throughout this entire pandemic. We have to give us money to make up for the loss in revenues and the way we've been having extraordinary expenses. So, Lisa, I don't, I'm do not i not going to say here what has to be cut. All I know is it's not acceptable, and everyone should be railing to convince the Republicans and Mitch McConnell do this for this country. If we don't get this crisis under control, our economy is going to implode. Conversely, if we can wrap our arms around this, Get enough money to the states like New York so we can have mass vaccination as soon as it's humanly possible. We can supercharge our economy once again, and that's what everyone wants.
3: Lieutenant Governor, a couple of things to unpack here. One, are you saying that without state aid from the federal level, you can't distribute this vaccine?
1: No, I didn't say that. I'm just saying that we desperately need money to have a, a robust, aggressive plan. We will do it. This is New York. We'll figure it out. We are left on our own throughout this entire pandemic uh, is uh, unfortunate and it never should have been that way. We should have had a national response to this crisis, but we didn't. Failure of the federal government, failure of the Trump administration. So the governor and I have been working on this. We're ready for this. We can handle this, but it's going to be very expensive to get this vaccination out distributed to literally 20 million people not once but twice and that's the challenge that we're facing. So the reality is we want to yeah. keep funding, we want to keep paying for health care workers and people who do that. We need money from the federal government. We need their help.
3: I understand you're urging Leader McConnell to come to the table. Have you urged Speaker Pelosi to do the same thing who for many people is perhaps aiming a little bit too high particularly over the last couple of months going into the election?
1: I don't know what is too high during a global pandemic. These are extraordinary costs. We're not asking them to help us balance our annual budget. We've had to incur costs that no one ever could have foreseen when they did their budgeting. And now it's not just the blue states. Remember Mitch McConnell said, why would we bail out the blue states, meaning New York, California, Connecticut, New Jersey? Now it is a national phenomenon, and we need them to assist every state because this is going to hold back our economy. And one of the problems we have is that small businesses in particular, and I toured the southern tier west of New York yesterday to visit small businesses, they are barely clinging on for life. And the programs that helped them before, the unemployment program for the federal government that assisted businesses as well, business owners as well as for their employees, that's all going to expire in another within weeks. When that money has gone, who do you yeah. think is going to be doing the consumer, consumer purchasing? We need to keep our economy going. It's going to all dry up.
3: Kathy, we always appreciate you dropping by. We appreciate it. Thank you for your time this morning. Kathy Hochul there, New York's lieutenant
0: governor. Right now, Julie Norman joins us. She's at UCL in London, uh, expert on all sorts of issues of distress in politics. And one of that is one of those, I should say, is her study of activism. Professor Norman, thank you for joining us on the president elect Liberals, I guess they're called progressives now, but I like the word liberals uh, better. And then this idea of activism. What is the activism this president will face?
4: Well, Tom, I think that's a really good question. I think that we'll see different kinds of pressures on Biden from both the left and the right. We know that there will be um, you know pressure on Biden to move forward on campaign promises that he made regarding racial justice and addressing entrenched inequalities and I think a lot of that will take the form of more positive activism, the sense of like political pressure but he'll certainly get some other kinds of pressure from the left as well which we've already seen in some comments in response to his uh, nominees so far but I do think he has a very pragmatic team in place Um, he's putting in a lot of people who resonate with but um, individual kind of across the spectrum, so we'll see what kind of mode that takes
0: okay, well, then there's that Washington word pragmatic. in what way will moderate Democrats be pragmatic, pragmatic with their more boisterous brethren?, <laughs>
4: well, I think it's just going to be what actually is a what the Biden administration is actually able to do. We know that they will most likely be somewhat constrained to a more moderate agenda, as it is with what's looking like a most most uh, likely Republican Congress. Um, if they are, however, able to give some nods to some issues on the progressive agenda, I think one area where they'll have the most ability to do that is with climate change. We've already saw seen Biden appoint John Kerry as a new climate czar. Um, He will most likely use executive actions to unwind some of the um, the regulations that, that Trump put a stop on in regards to the environment. So I think he'll do what he can in some areas that really are important to the progressives in the party. But it's also clear that he probably won't move as far in other areas that some on the left would want.
2: And perhaps uh, that includes China, although uh, this has been a bipartisan issue. We saw The New York Times interview with Thomas Friedman uh, with President-elect Joe Biden talking about he does not plan to roll back the tariffs on China in short order. His first order of affairs will be to reestablish the ties with allies. What will the United Front look like when it comes to uh, tackling the China issue as they define it?
4: Yeah, well, Lisa, I think this is an area where we won't see as much of a real substantive policy shift as much as just a shift in style. The Biden administration will most likely maintain a somewhat tough on China approach, especially in regards to issues like security and technology. But they will leave some room open for engagement, again, on issues like climate change, again, on issues like trade and also doing so in a way that's much more Cooperative with allies, especially European allies, um, rather than just an American first approach or a bullying or strong arm, strong arm of other countries.
3: Professor, we're talking about policy in the future, obviously. The president elect is putting together his candidate, uh, putting together his cabinet, and I think we're all happy to see a smooth transition starting to form going into 2021. But when the president elect starts talking about policy in the here and now, set by officials in the lame duck session. Do you think, Professor, that helps the formulation of policy or hinders it?
4: Well, I think this is a challenge right now for Biden. He obviously wants to weigh in on the big crises facing Americans right now, the economic crisis and the pandemic, of course. But he has to do so in a way that not only uh, not impinging too far in the current administration, but also on his own Democratic colleagues in Congress. Um, We saw yesterday even the bipartisan framework that was put forward there was uh, some pushback to that from both Republicans and Democrats uh, in, in other areas of leadership in Congress that that was kind of stepping on toes negotiations. But I think the bottom line is that for Biden and for others who just want to see some real changes on these issues, they, they don't mind that pressure going forward and they don't mind uh, kind of having a stronger voice in that, even if it's a little bit, um, even if it's seen as pressure by other and their own parties.
3: Professor, I appreciate your perspective. Julie Norman there, University <coughs> College London professor.
0: What's great about David Coston is not the Brown University acuity. What's great about him is he writes precise research notes that actually, as an adult used to do, looks out one two, and three years. And here's what you need to know. Blended in one, two, three years out is a constant 26% lift to this market. He is at Goldman Sachs. David, good morning. I love how you go out to 2022 and you get us out. I think it's SPX 4,600. How do we get there?
5: Well, you get there a couple of ways. You get there to around 3,700 at the end of this year. Uh, You get there to 4,300 at the end of 2020. 21 and then you get to 4600 at the end of 2022 so that's the path and sort of what are the building blocks behind it well basically you've got an economy that's getting better you have earnings that are growing and you have the rates that uh, that are staying super low I mean those are the three building blocks It's not so uh, so brilliant and it's also the Tina trade what is the alternative what are the all what else is there uh, that, that, that's out there and equities becomes the default Opportunity. So I want to think about the following way. Uh Tom, break the market into two pieces. Let's take the five big stocks that are almost a quarter of the market. And let's take the other 75% of the market. Those big five stocks, their sales were up 18% this year. Sales for everything else, down five percent. So that explains why these stocks were up around 50% year to date. So they had a great year. We understand that. Mm. We're looking forward. What's the, what's the path forward? These companies are expected to have revenue growth each of the next couple of years of around 15%. So that's kind of part of your leg going forward, Tom. And the second part, if you think of the other 495 stocks, they're expected to have around 6% revenue growth, top-line sales growth of each of the next couple of years. So that's basically the story. Uh, it's about an economy that's getting better coming off the pandemic a crisis low and generally getting better. The Fed on hold. Uh, that is our uh, our, our general uh, assumptions. The vaccination of half uh, herd immunity by May of next year. All that is to the positive, and I think the market is uh, is recognizing that. And will continue to do so, so when, as a role. When of just
3: you say it just sounds like a multiple story, but when I talk to you and when I read your research, it's not just about the multiple story. It's about better earnings that you're looking for, and above consensus earnings too. David, can you walk me through why? Why you're a little bit more constructive than maybe the consensus is at the moment on earnings specifically?
5: So, if we look at the earnings, uh, it's a, Jonathan, it's a, good, it's a good question. So, the consensus expectation is around one hundred sixty-five dollars of S and P five hundred earnings next year, one six five, and we're at. 175 dollars. You know what explains that? Well, part of it is a better economic backdrop. We've got uh, GDP growth something around 5%. The consensus expectations of 49 economists in the blue chip forecast around 3.8%. So that's a higher level of activity. There's not much inflation out there. Inflation under control. So that's basically allowing companies to have that uh, broader level of, uh, of of earnings growth uh, with not a lot of you know, a lot of pressure on input costs. So that's your base, your margins are basically, part of that is recovering. And so those are your two, your two building blocks as we see it in our models. And the Fed has made it very clear in our view that they're on hold for next three years, at least perhaps as long as five years, uh, based on the economics forecast. And so that's a, a pretty benign backdrop. It's a good backdrop for the equity market. And when you think about the asset allocators, the portfolio managers out there, around 50% of the assets uh, are allocated to equities, about 20, little, little, little less than 25% to bonds. So what's the alternative? Uh, you know, cash is offering zero. And so that's a, it's just still an attractive yeah. place for, uh, for, for the equity market, Jonathan.
3: David, that's the index story. Beautifully laid out, going out to 2022. Let's talk about a sector-level story now. The overweight's in the mix for Goldman, industrials, materials. Heard a lot about that. The cyclical trade of the last month has played out wonderfully for so many people who had it on. You're staying overweight, information technology. Why, David?
5: Jonathan, I want you to think about it three ways. I want to think about growth, I want to think about value, and you want to think about cyclicals. The growth story is basically duration, equity duration, those longer-term cash flows at the zero lower bound. Those growth in mostly technology is prized. That's worth a lot, and they're likely to outperform. You have value. The best value absolutely is in healthcare. They are the cheapest relative to the market in 40 years, you got to go back to when, uh, when uh, early uh, Clinton administration, when they were trying to restructure part of healthcare. care, look at the Obamacare period of time and 10 years ago. Those are the only times that were similar, and actually the valuation of healthcare is even more attractive than either of those two times. So that's your value trade and your value opportunity, and then the cyclical recovery, of course, is the pandemic. Uh, relief coming from the vaccinations that we are assuming, uh, and some of the industrial companies likely to benefit. So I think that's your 3 prong approach to kind of attacking the market. I think the other areas of the market likely to do less well, financials, challenge of the flat yoker, energy still under a lot of pressure, consumer staples, uh, utilities, some of those other areas will be challenged. But those are the, the ways that I would break that down.
2: So it, what I'm hearing from you, David, is potentially adding on to what Andrew Slimmons and Morgan Stanley said earlier, which is perhaps the rally in some of the highest beta cyclical stocks, the uh, travel sectors, the financials, areas that have gotten beaten up uh, disproportionately during the pandemic, that that perhaps has gotten a little ahead of itself. Is that accurate?
5: I would say uh, certainly on the on the on the way you just I would I would sort of break apart your question there least and since the financials I think have a, a challenging uh, headwinds in terms of the uh, very flat yield curve, the fact that there's big uh, reserves that need to be taken for the uncertainty on uh, on potential defaults uh, from the consumer as well as the commercial side, uh, the Federal Reserve has made regulations difficult to uh, actually raise dividends they're basically more of the most of the banks limited uh, to prohibited from buying back stock at this juncture so those are some of the key drivers historically that have been benefiting financials when the, when those are in play and they're not there right now uh, on the industrial side uh, the idea of uh, vaccination you know does offer some better opportunity for some of the travel sector and some of those industrial categories i might point to uh, some of the uh, some of the aerospace defense companies as well. I think the way to think about uh, value opportunities is to look at the 2021 and 2022 level of profits and compare those with the pre-pandemic level of profits in 2019, so kind of make that comparison. And for the overall market, you'll be a little bit higher. Maybe you're about 7% higher, that's our estimates, 7% higher between 2019 and kind of go out to 2021. But you've got other areas. Some areas we've got really depressed level of profits. Maybe they're 50 percent, 60 percent, as much as you had two years ago. I think that's the opportunity for a normalization. So that's where the value look at. We look at there. And we see some of the uh, travel and the hospitality area. You know, they would fall into that into that category. Lisa, I want to pick up on one thing you said earlier. You were mentioning about uh, credit and kind of what's happening on the you know, the equity market is telling a slightly a different story from the credit market. Because if you look at the strongest balance sheet companies, they're up 26% year-to-date, a portfolio of those. You compare that with a weak balance sheet portfolio, they're down 1%, and that's sector neutral. So that's not gonna skew towards any one particular area. Yes, you're paying 35 times for a strong balance sheet, and you're paying 13 times for a weaker balance sheet portfolio. But that's telling us that portfolio managers are not totally embracing the idea that the economy is solely recovering and that we're sort of in the clear. And so you're seeing pockets of opportunity. And I would say if you have a view that the you know, there's a path towards normalization, some of the weaker balance sheet companies would be attractive at this juncture. And they tend to be uh, clustered yeah. around some of the pandemic, uh, you know, companies that have been hurt most in the pandemic.
3: David, you always make it sound so easy, the path to 4,600. It's great to catch up, sir, as always. David Costin there of Goldman Sachs. Thank you.
0: Right now on the domestic economy, and John mentions ADP today, claims tomorrow, and then on to Jobs Day on Friday. We'll go beneath the headline numbers here on radio and television at 8.30. Michael Firoli joins with JP Morgan, who was definitive a number of years ago in calculating a shocking statistic for our potential GDP. Michael, before a jobs discussion, do you have to reset your analysis of potential uh, GDP after a pandemic?
6: So I think that's a difficult question. There are certainly aspects of uh, the recent economic environment that would cause uh, one to think that potential GDP growth may be slower. Uh, That said, we've seen a nice recovery in capital spending. So capital formation may be holding in uh, pretty well here. But I think in the long run, uh, just given the demographic trends, uh, potential is probably going to be inching down a little bit every couple of years, just given slower growth uh, in the labor force. And that's just due to long-run demographics, not uh, necessarily short-run up and downs that we've seen over the course of this year.
0: So what's the run rate on nonfarm payrolls? The great shock pre-pandemic was to see such good nonfarm payrolls over time. What's your new run rate on NFP?
6: So uh, when we get back to a normalized state of the world, which could be many years from now, uh, we think it should be under 100,000, which is to say the number of jobs created just to absorb new entrants into the labor force. Uh, So I think the days, uh, you know, when we grew up, when it was 200 plus that we considered to be a normal runway runway are far behind us.
2: So we are up against a fiscal cliff and a number of people have come on and talked about this, this idea that some of the unemployment benefits are running out and will expire in the next couple of weeks. How big of a gap is there in your expectations for growth with an extension and without an extension of those benefits?
6: So the fiscal cliff in terms of jobless benefits at the end of the year, we don't think will be anywhere near as severe as the one we saw um, in August when uh, when the um, $600 weekly uh, federal pandemic unemployment compensation payments ran out. So what's at stake here is uh, two programs, uh, pandemic unemployment assistance, which is for gig workers and other uh, types of employees who don't, don't normally qualify for benefits. And then this other program, uh, which is called PEUC. Most of the PEUC people will actually graduate into state extended benefit programs. So it's really uh, uh, people on PUA, and they were scheduled to only have nine months of benefits anyway. So uh, so there will be a hit here. I don't think it's going to be uh, nearly as severe, as I said, uh, as what we saw over the summer. But uh, certainly it's something we believe uh, will be a priority in any uh, uh, stimulus talks. Certainly we saw that in the bipartisan proposal yesterday. Uh, as as it should be, of course. And this is certainly extended benefits uh, like PEUC are something that uh, the government has instituted in almost every uh, recession in the post-war period.
3: Michael, just to turn to the ISM that came out in the last 24 hours. I think a lot of people walked away from that a bit confused. The number looked great. Then the employment component was really, really soft. And this quote came from them. Companies and suppliers continue to operate in reconfigured factories, but absenteeism, short term shutdowns to sanitized facilities, and difficulties in returning and hiring workers are causing strains that will likely limit future manufacturing growth potential. What do you think about that quote, that right there, Michael? Is that something that resonates with you about the prospects for the labor market in the near term?
6: So, certainly there were some concerns when we had, you know, getting back to the other question, when we had those $600 weekly. Uh, uh, bonus payments, that that was uh, hindering uh, the return of the workforce. Uh, but with those behind us, we haven't been hearing as many anecdotes. So I agree that it was a little bit um, confusing, those, uh, uh, those comments and that um, uh, that reading. And generally, uh, you know, one thing I would say is, is it's been a little bit confusing how strong manufacturing employment has actually been over the past few years. And actually, we've seen manufacturing productivity go down, uh, which is, pretty odd because this is a a sector where generally we expect high productivity. Uh, So I think over time we should uh, come to expect slower manufacturing employment growth. I wouldn't though expect it all to happen in one month like the ISM might might perhaps suggest.
3: Well, Michael, do you think it makes it difficult to get a read on payrolls this Friday, given what we heard yesterday?
6: Well, I think it was difficult even before yesterday. Uh, We were getting... You know, dip, DIFFERING SIGNALS FROM A NUMBER OF THINGS WE NORMALLY LOOK AT, AND I THINK THE CONSENSUS, THE BLOOMBERG uh, uh, POLL WAS SOMEWHERE BETWEEN MINUS 100 TO PLUS 700 OR 800, SO QUITE A, a WIDE RANGE THERE. Uh, HOPEFULLY THE ADP THIS MORNING IS um, SOMEWHAT CORRECT in, IN SAYING THAT IT'S SORT OF IN THE MIDDLE OF THAT RANGE, uh, BUT I THINK EVEN BEFORE THE ISM uh, CALLING uh, THIS FRIDAY'S NUMBER HAS BEEN uh, A LITTLE TRICKIER uh, CERTAINLY mm-hmm. THAN mm-hmm. N- NORMALLY YEARS.
0: Michael, John Herman of MUFG has a great grid this morning showing his relative optimism, even though he's got a negative statistic on GDP, and then the street and the IMF, OECD, and all the others as well. Is a general statement this December, are we too gloomy?
6: Uh, I think it, it depends whether you're talking about the very near term or whether you're talking about the medium term. Uh, for the medium term, I, say, I would say... Um, prospects are looking pretty good, certainly given all the news on the vaccines, which everyone, all the viewers uh, are are aware of. Uh, If we get something like the bipartisan uh, stimulus deal combined with the vaccines, I think we could be set up for a very strong uh, uh, 2021, particularly as we get into the spring months. Uh, But if you're talking about the very near term, I think we could be in for some uh, pretty, uh, pretty rough months, particularly December, January, given Uh, Given the surge in the virus, the presumptive surge following the Thanksgiving uh, holiday and what that could mean for activity, particularly in consumer services. So if you just have a very short-term view, I think uh, uh, there are certainly reasons for gloom. I think if you look beyond a few months, uh, I'm quite optimistic on prospects for the U.S. economy.
2: So Thomas just trolling me at this point, saying, are we too gloomy and then having you weigh in on it, Michael. I do wonder, though, when you talk about how it's going to be very difficult in the near term, we keep talking to people about the potential for scarring. And there's a question of how much people are adequately accounting for this in their models for the future beyond the next couple of months. Where are the pitfalls in terms of what people are pricing in? In other words, is there weakness that's going to be more persistent and have longer lasting scars than perhaps people are accounting for?
6: So I think this gets back to Tom, uh, somewhat to Tom's question about uh, potential GDP growth. So there certainly will be some scarring. Uh, I think the extent is, uh, so far the indicators are looking, I, I would say relative to expectations in, in say March or April, when it comes to things like permanent uh, unemployment or people who consider themselves permanently unemployed as a share of the overall pool of unemployed individuals. That's actually not moved up as much as uh, certainly I fear. Um, there. We're still a little depressed on labor force participation. Uh, I think if we have strong growth next year, we can hope to uh, bring those people back into the labor market. Uh, But I think there are reasons to, um, to say the jury's still out. But what I would say is, yes, there will be scarring. The degree might
3: be less than, certainly than I had feared uh, six or seven months ago. Michael, great to catch up. As always, Michael Feroldi there of and looking ahead
0: to Payrolls Friday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.